Hi, and welcome to Business Talk, brought to you by Business West and Living Local, and brought to you by Bank ESB. Hi, I'm Chris Kellogg from the Kellogg Crew Morning Show on 94.7 WMAS, and here is your host for this episode of Business Talk. He's the editor and associate publisher of Business West. Here's George O'Brien. Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local. We have a great show for you today. Before we get to it, though, uh, let's have a message from this month's sponsor, Bank ESB. Bank ESB is here for local business. As a local bank, we provide everything you need to thrive around here, including personalized guidance and business products like free checking and cash management services. Unlock your potential and learn more at bankesb.com slash business. Member FDIC DIF. Okay, we are back. As I said, we have a fabulous show for you this week. It is my honor to have as my guest, Tony Signoli. He is the president of the AL Signoli Company. How are you this morning, Tony? Excellent, George. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. We always like to have Tony on the show. All kinds of things that we can talk about. Probably nothing that we can't talk about. So I, <laughs> well, I, I don't absolutely. I, I don't even know where to start. I, okay. <laughs> let's 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 start with Smith and Wesson. This is sure. an interesting topic of conversation. We have a major employer in Western Massachusetts that announces it's uh, moving its corporate headquarters to Tennessee, and we are led to believe that they are doing this because of a, a law regulating the manufacturing of automatic weapons that's only been proposed hasn't been passed and right. has been proposed for many years. Nobody's really buying this. Uh, what, what is your take on, on how this all went down and what this means for the region? Mm. I think on the political side of this, what you've just mentioned, the pending legislation, the threat of legislation that would have denied Smith & Wesson the opportunity to create 60% of its products here. Bearing in mind, they can't sell those products anyway in Massachusetts under current Massachusetts gun laws. But that was the door opener, I think, for Smith & Wesson to start to think about, hey, what are we doing here? You know, you don't stay at a party where you're not welcome, where the host isn't, you know, being gracious to you and whatnot. And that might be Massachusetts right now if you're Smith & Wesson. So the opportunity to look at Tennessee, certainly, that door got opened with the the, the filing of this legislation. Whether that was the, uh, the impetus for them to move completely or not, who knows for sure. But let's bear this piece of mind. What do we know now? We know that Smith & Wesson was in conversations with Tennessee in April of this year. Around the time that the bill was filed, around the time the legislation was filed, George, but also there's so many other reasons to take a look at Tennessee from not having to pay income tax in Tennessee to all the other tax incentives the state provides. I've got some clients there and we see this often. And I've got some clients here who have their headquarters in Tennessee. And fortunately, they're still here in Massachusetts expanding like Eastman Chemical and Indian Orchard. Well, we, we know that these things don't happen overnight and they don't usually happen in even how long ago was April, six, seven months ago. They usually take a lot longer than that. Yeah. How long do you think that this has been going on? I think Tennessee and Texas yeah. probably have been courting Smith & Wesson just based on what I see with a lot of my clients that are here that are national or international. We're always getting an outreach from Tennessee, from Georgia, Florida, Texas, Texas and Tennessee perhaps being the most aggressive. And when I say an outreach, what's unique there, it's not just economic development officials that will reach out to us. The governor will get on the phone and try to have a conversation with a decision maker from a corporation here, you know, trying to make the case for uh, the, the, the enticements to come on down south, i.e. better weather, 
less cost of energy, energy costs being much, much less, quality of living, quality of life being much more or less expensive for employees, and all the other things that they love to throw into the pot, from employee training to uh, you know the aspect of being a supportive partner out there trying to bring business to their corporations in their states. This is a county that hails itself as a quote Second Amendment sanctuary. I believe, yeah, we don't, yeah, yeah. we don't, we don't have that here in Western Massachusetts. No, we no. are not a Second yeah. Amendment sanctuary. So yeah. interesting. That the, you know, the president of the company said, "I really want to go. This is going to cost me one hundred and twenty-five million dollars, yeah. but I really didn't have much of a choice." I we'll see. What do you yeah. think it all means for this region, psychologically, emotionally? Wow, that that is a quite way you put pose that question is excellent. It's the psychological impact. It's the impact of losing a major brand. As I recall, Smith & Wesson is one of the top 10 most recognized brands on the planet. Top five, I believe. Top five. There you go, George. I love it. Top five. That's amazing. So yeah, there's no way to to say this in any other way or to try to sugarcoat it. This is a huge hit, a huge impact psychologically, emotionally, I think, to the economic base not just Worcester, Massachusetts, but Massachusetts itself. This is a hit. It's like losing, you know, it's losing a name that certainly, when, when this occurred, this wasn't just local media and Massachusetts media. This got notoriety worldwide in economic press that Smith & Wesson would do this. What it also means, it's a great calling card for Tennessee. I'm calling yet again in our area and in New England overall. Hey, gosh, we're able to get Smith & Wesson to come on down. Bearing in mind something that you did very well in all your coverage of this, George, you know, you made it clear this is 500 employees going and there's still 1000 here. Now, what do we do, i.e. the state legislators, uh, the Commonwealth itself and economic development of the city of Springfield to make sure that those thousands stay here? Well, you raise a good point. I mean, those states down south haven't been shy about coming after manufacturers across the spectrum. I mean, it's much cheaper to to be in the south. The energy costs, uh, the labor costs, the taxes are usually less. This is a very expensive state to be in. So, uh, you know, states have not been shy about coming after the companies in this area, but we've done a pretty good job of hanging on to them. Guns might be different. I I, I don't know. Mm. We have seen other gun manufacturers leave this area and, you know, Savage is hanging in, but, you know, we'll wait and see. So, the losses on the psychological side, yeah, I think they're there. Smith & Wesson was kind of a an interesting corporation to have in your backyard. Yep. You're proud to have the jobs, but I don't think you, uh, uh, how do I phrase this? Yeah. Uh, kind of like that weird uncle. You, uh, you, you kind of hide when the sure. relatives come over. I don't think you, <laughs> you announce loudly yeah. that, that Smith and Wesson is one of your biggest corporate citizens, but you know, I think you, you and I talked about the history right. of Smith and yeah. Wesson is everywhere. I mean, yeah. uh, both Smith and Wesson were great philanthropists. Uh, there were hospitals named after them. And, yeah. and things. So we'll find out how that goes. I, for one, am not really concerned about the jobs that are being lost. I think you're, you're seeing billboards go up already. Yeah. You're seeing people ready to snap these employees up. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see. Uh, yeah. I've talked to some people who think that, you know, behind all this, uh, you know, Eric Lesser said, you know, th- this could be an opportunity. There are a lot of small manufacturers that have been limited in their ability to grow because they just can't get the help. Yeah, uh, They can't get enough employees. So maybe if we put those 500 employees in different places and allow those companies to grow, who knows? Uh, this Absolutely. might wind up being yeah. a, a good thing for the yeah. Valley in the long run. But it is tough to lose Smith & Wesson. So. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So 
You're listening to Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local. I'm George O'Brien, the editor of Business West. We're talking to Tony Signoli, president of the A.L. Signoli Company. So, Tony, I guess the other big thing in the news right now are these uh, vaccine mandates. And uh, we have two new sets of Biden administration mandates coming down. Uh, this is going to be really challenging for the businesses, not only in this state, but in, in every other state. Uh, what are you hearing from your clients and other people about how this is going to go down and, and what their reaction is to it? Well, we've got a lot of interest from some of our corporate clients who are manufacturers here in Massachusetts and certainly in other places as well. You're right. This is a national issue. I think I get asked almost every other day by one corporate here what I might be hearing about the mask mandate of a particular municipality. Will it be lifted? Do our employees who are vaccinated still have to wear a mask here inside our manufacturing plant? There are some difficulties when some of these companies are national and they've got sites in other places. Uh, it's difficult for corporate HR at the corporate headquarters to stay on top of. Here's what our rules are in Michigan. Here's what they are in Tennessee. Here's how it's different in Massachusetts or gosh, in Oklahoma. So this is a constant that I'm hearing from plant managers, from, from local uh, COOs, others I wanted who are running some of these plants, that they've got to deal with this all the time. Certainly in our neck of the woods right now in Western <laughs> Mass, uh, as we sit here just last night, West Springfield has lifted its mask mandate uh, at the mayor's request. Will that impact other municipalities here? We're waiting to see that, how that, that works. And certainly, it's not just for manufacturing that this, this concern and impact is there. It's the MGMs of the world. It's others. Uh, perhaps there are a lot of folks right now taking a look at the example of the Eastern States uh, Exposition. As we're understanding it, given the many, many, many people that show, showed up there, and I'm embarrassed. I think they did break the, the million-person uh, they did. I should know that. Thank you, George. So they broke that. And at best, there's possibly 100 cases of COVID attributed. If you do the percentages on that, it's stunning. That's very, 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 very low. Are we coming out of this? Are we in the right place? Tough thing here is you've got federal, state, and local leaders who have to deal with this every day. In Springfield, we've been fascinated. Our corporate clients who have businesses here, but again, who have headquarters elsewhere, we have been appreciative of those daily updates that Mayor Sarno, that Mark Kerouac, Dr. Roos from Mercy, Kerouac from Bay State, obviously, uh, we're doing on a regular basis with Helen Calton Harris. The information coming out of this municipality was really exemplary for us. And we actually mentioned that in some other states for those particular clients that, hey, here's what they're doing in Springfield. That was kind of a fun thing to be able to do, George, to be able to say, hey, here's what Springfield's doing and being able to take a copy of those daily links, those those videos and send them around the country. I noted that a few other places took note of that and reached out to their health officials beyond their, their municipal health officials, but to their local hospitals and others to come in to give a version of what they thought was apropos for them, given that at the same time that they're getting state and federal, uh, you know, mandates and, and uh, uh, guidance on this as well. Okay. The vaccine mandates of uh, those, we don't know exactly when some of them are going to take effect, uh, you know, these are impacting businesses of more than 100 employees, and it's going to affect uh, everyone who does business with the federal government, who has contracts with the federal government. Uh, those are going to be major. Yeah. Uh, uh, in a way, I think it, it kind of relieves some employers from the burden of having to put a vaccine mandate in place themselves. Uh, those are very controversial. I don't think anybody wants to go near yeah. them. So on one hand, it's great yeah. to say, well, we didn't put this in effect. The federal government did. But 
Uh, now you're bringing a whole new set of challenges to employers who already had a, a whole bunch of them anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you think that people will just maybe try to wait this out and see if this is temporary as in real temporary or it's something that the federal government might uh, push back a little bit or is this really what's coming down the road mm-hmm. here? I think what we're starting to hear right now, real time on the ground from employers that we represent is that folks have become weary of this, certainly, but at the same time, they've kind of gotten used to it of waiting for government to give that that indication. You're right. It's been air cover for some of our CEOs and COOs to be able to say, this isn't our decision at the company. This is the Fed or this is the local municipality. Uh, I think at this point, this has gone on so long. It's just become yet another challenge on the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month as to what you have to do or not to do. Perhaps even the larger challenge for some of our corporates is that uh, taking a look at the number of vaccinated employees and having to make that decision. You know, can you work here? If you are not vaccinated, whether it's a religious exemption or or whatever, you know, we're lucky. A lot of our folks that we represent have had phenomenal response uh, to vaccination efforts and their employees are largely double vaxxed. And that's that's important for us. It's been recognized, I think, by a lot of the the labor force as as a necessity to doing business with that particular company. Okay, well, be interesting to see how this all plans out. I mean, I know. I think enforcement is going to be almost next to impossible when it comes to this. I yeah. mean, it, it, yeah. You can't do business with the federal government unless all your employees are vaccinated. Who's going to police all that? Who's going exactly. to enforce all yeah. that? I, I don't know. But yeah. the risks are going to be there. I don't think it's something that those employers can ignore, certainly. So we'll see how all that plans out. Absolutely. What, are you, what are you hearing from your clients out there? Uh, we all want uh, that normal. We don't even want to use that phrase, new normal, anyway. We don't mm. want new normal. We want the old normal. We want to go back to where we were in February of 2020. What, what are your clients telling you about how far we might be from that? Yeah, what they're saying to me is that their employee bases look at this in different ways. Those that are more so in professional services or tech, their employees are saying, hey, I kind of like what's just going on here. Can I continue to work from home? Is there a way for us to do this? I'm getting a lot of that, especially in greater Boston, where real estate expenses are so high, the lease to own, to maintain. We're also getting those exactly what you said from our manufacturing base, from folks who for 5, 10, 20 years have been involved with a particular company. They want to go back pre-2020. There was a camaraderie. There was an esprit de corps, team kind of a feeling to showing up at work, being part of that work body with your fellow workers, folks you know, people that you may socialize as well. So there's two schools of thought on this as to how this all works. That's what we're getting right now. And I hate to make a uh, an age uh, comparison here, but I'm finding 45 and over, I want to go back. 45 and under, eh, I'd kind of like working from home and, and, and doing this the way that we are. We pick up on some of this even from Boston firms like, like Wayfair. You know, a lot of their folks have simply not returned to those incredible offices in downtown Boston and their younger crowd has really kind of dispersed and spread out around the nation to be able to work elsewhere and get away from the incredibly high cost of quality of, of living in Boston. You know, that amazing rents and leases and the, the you know, home ownership, almost impossible in greater Boston. So a lot of these folks, if I were talking to one earlier this morning, this person has been working from Colorado by choice, left a, a major uh, you know, day-to-day at Wayfair in Boston, working in Colorado, loving it, and now worried about Wayfair saying, okay, we now need you to come back to the office at some point in time, start to get ready for this. So I think this is uh, something that, that HR departments everywhere are going to be dealing with. 
How do we how do we handle this? Can we? What is the new norm? You know, is it the old norm or is it something that's morphing between the two? I think you're right. I don't think we're going to go back to where we were before. And I think it would be crazy for employers mm -hmm. to try and force the issue. I, yeah. I think they're already dealing with some real serious workforce issues. It's hard enough to find good help. I don't think smart employers are going to be in a position to say, okay, you have to come back to work or you can't work here anymore. Because yeah. those people are, are okay, well, I'll yeah. go work somewhere else. So we've only got a couple of minutes left. We would be remiss if we had you on the show when we didn't talk at least a little bit about okay. politics. Uh, what what do we have for good races here locally? Uh, election day is coming up. I know there's some mayoral races out there. What, what's mm -hmm. good? Well, certainly Holyoke is hot in Westfield. These are the most contested mayoral races right now. Most of the other mayors in the area are either not up for re-election because they have a four-year term that isn't up this particular year, or they're just not challenged. There's a challenge in Agawam as well to Mayor Sapelli, but Sapelli yeah. seems to be in a very strong position. Uh, going back to Holyoke and Westfield, those are the hot ones. And I think in an economic sense, a lot of us look at those two communities as so important for the mm -hmm. economic engine of all of Western Massachusetts, of Hammond County, of Pioneer Valley, Holyoke. No great secret, tough times. Take a ride around, look at the reality of Holyoke. So much potential there, though, still. Who the people of Holyoke choose as their next mayor, they're really choosing their next CEO. And right. I, I hate to say this, but I hear it from clients in Holyoke, some who have come there anew. They're excited about the opportunities. They're glad to be there. Many of them are in the cannabis industry. But some of our clients who have been around for a while are getting a little tired. And they're hoping that this next mayor will be someone who will be able to move them massively forward with this four-year term in an economic sense. Holyoke, you get the feeling the clock's starting to run out. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the hot races right now. And certainly, as we look towards 2022, we now know what the new districts look like for the legislature. So certainly, you'll see some major changes there. Senator Vilas uh, will now have West Springfield. That's a big change for his particular district. Senator Comerford moves out into Worcester County. Senator Gobi, a very, very different uh, district that she's got now. I think she's lost 11 communities. I think a good thing for Springfield, the hub of our economics, uh, and for Chickamee, for Holyoke, uh, and the surrounding larger municipalities in Western Massachusetts, things stay pretty much the same, with the exception of Senator Gomez exiting West Springfield, Senator Vilas coming in. A lot of folks look at that one and say, well, West Springfield and Westfield, very similar, very compatible, share right. some major roadways like Route 20. Maybe that presents some opportunities by having one senator for that, that new district. But we'll be watching that. And certainly the bigger picture, 2022 in the congressional races, George, why does that matter so much to us here? What happens in Congress matters to all of us. But right. should the Democrats lose control of the House of Representatives in 2022, that means that Chairman Richard Neal, Chairman of Ways and Means, is only chairman till January of 2023. That's huge. That's gigantic for us. This right. has been the, the guy. This has been the player. Whether it's been dollars coming back from the Fed in a normal sense or coming back for COVID relief, the impact of Neil is large. And I'll go short on this. You know, we know him well. You know him very well. We all do here. We see him all the time. So often it's that biblical line of never a prophet in your own homeland. This guy is such a major player. The other day I saw some some information from my my industry folks talking about neil and arguably saying this is literally no longer uh, a gentleman a person who's in the top 10 of influence in the united states but in the top five of influence and that was including the president of the united states for us here in western mass that's a big deal 
uh, what happens with the House of Representatives in a party sense. So, Neil, a powerhouse for us, and certainly, too, you know, uh, Congressman McGovern in the next district over. A good thing is their districts have not been reconfigured all that greatly. They'll still be representing congressional districts that are very similar to the ones that they're in right now. And their congressional districts are spaced all over the state. I mean, they're they're yeah. huge. Yeah. yeah. Neil is almost half the state when you take a look half at the it. State, yeah. Gosh, yeah. So forget about 2022. Let's talk about yeah. 2024 for just a minute. Sure. Uh, I don't think we've ever had a president, a first-term president, who wasn't really expected to run for re-election again. Mm. Uh, you're yeah. a historian. Can you ever recall a time when a first-term president ran and won without the expectation that they would run? The expectation that they would run. Expectation. That, he still again. might. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know if we can have yeah. that expectation. But I don't. I think that's a unique. Uh, situation in American history, but um, I think it very if, much is. You said the question perfectly. Is the right. expectation is the key word right. there? We don't expect Joe Biden to run for re-election. That was largely the conversation amongst many Democrats during the Democratic convention, the last Democratic convention. Even uh, it is pretty much agreed to that at his age, and given the stress of this position right now and given performance overall, and that's not making a positive or a negative comment on the Biden administration, it's even more so expected now in most political circles, most of the key prognosticators, we do not, we don't expect him to be running. What we do expect to start to see right now is others who will start to move towards that on the Democratic side. And many who will not look at another norm, which is that the vice president would be the normal nominee or the next player in line. We're not seeing a strong uh, perceptual performance by the vice president, and largely for both Biden and Harris. That's largely because of what they have to deal with right now. You know, uh, neither has really put a lot of time into being out on the campaign stump, so to speak. And the challenges they face, the difficulty within the party, a party that's so divided. There was a time when Congress would have been able to move the Biden agenda, disagreeing, the AOCs and the mansions disagreeing behind closed doors, even publicly. But then there was the, was the power of the caucuses that would get these things done. Joe Biden doesn't enjoy that. And there's a fatigue right now with a lot of Democratic activists as they look towards the big seat in 2024. So definitely, I would prognosticate right now that Joe Biden's not a candidate for re-election in 2024. Okay. Tony, we could go on for a long time and we'll have you back soon so we could finish Thank this you. up. But it's been great to have you on the show, and we'll have you back soon. So, Thank you so much, George. Okay. Thank you to all of you. Uh, been listening to another episode of Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.